uh, there's been this this misconception spread in the media that Bitcoin's energy expenditure will only ever increase. Mm, so that's, that's where you get those kind of headlines and articles from where people say like, oh, in uh, I think it was the World Economic Forum that said in 2017 that by 2020, mm -hmm. Bitcoin would use all the energy in the world mm -hmm. uh, of 20, like what was being used in 2017. Yeah. And the reality was like, it was like 0.1%. Yeah. So it just doesn't really make any sense, but they do the math of, well, you know, if we expect that by that year, there's this many people using Bitcoin and this is the energy expenditure per transaction, then we can just scale it up. But that's, right. that's fundamentally not how it works. Uh, we could spend 10 times as much energy as we are today and still process the same number of transactions, or we could spend only 10% of the energy that we are today and process 10 times as many transactions mm -hmm. through, for example, the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. So th there is no direct link there between right. the two, but it is like it's, it's difficult to understand. It takes people a lot of time to get to that point. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. Sam Wouters, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, this is the first time you've been on the show. Yeah. By quick way of introduction, you are a Bitcoin research analyst at River. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about some Bitcoin mining stuff. So, oh, I should also mention we're in beautiful Miami on the eve of the Bitcoin 2023 conference. So we're on the cusp of a very exciting week here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you just got in, right? Yeah, uh, last night. Okay, very cool. Um, okay, let's let's jump in. So we've talked about 
<clears throat> Bitcoin mining on the show somewhat. But I think it's one of the more underexplored topics. So I think what would be helpful is to just do like a Bitcoin mining 101. Uh, this sure. seems to be one of the most mysterious things to, to no coiners or pre-coiners that you talk about Bitcoin mining and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, are there people yeah. digging Bitcoin out of the ground? Oh, wait, it's not that. It's these computers doing complex math problems. Like, what's the point? And, and so they yeah. get into the whole wasted energy narrative. Um, whereas, obviously, in Bitcoin, we know that the only way to guarantee supply integrity is through proof of work. Uh, how do you kind of lay out the the whole explanation here of Bitcoin mining for, um, let's say, an audience that's being newly introduced to it? Yeah. Yeah, and I've, this is sort of my my background into Bitcoin as well as education, mm. sort of struggling through these questions yourself, and mm -hmm. then realizing like this stuff is so complicated and technical, and people seem really excited about it at the same time. So, how does all of this make sense essentially? Mm -hmm. And it is really relevant to understand, even if you might not feel like it is for you, because ultimately, if you have some money in Bitcoin, you want to understand what helps to keep it secure, mm -hmm. and mining is one of the things that does that. So. Bitcoin miners are essentially people all around the world who entrepreneurs essentially who set up computers that help secure the Bitcoin network. And the way they secure it is by uh, they are essentially the ones who add your transactions that you send between one another. They are the ones who add them to the blockchain. Uh, and the blockchain consists, as the name itself says, of a chain of blocks. And every block has a whole bunch of transactions. Uh, and miners essentially compete. They're like all around the world constantly competing to try to be the first one to add a new block of transactions to the blockchain. Mm. And uh, whoever essentially guesses right first, so rather than doing complex calculations as is often talked about, they're essentially just doing a huge number of guesses. Mm. And the more computers they have, the higher the odds that they are going to be the ones who guess what the, the right number is essentially, mm. so that they can add the next block of transactions to the mm. blockchain. And that sounds intimidating and technical and confusing like, you know, why are we doing this? Why can there be some kind of other mechanism? But Bitcoin mining ensures that it is like actually truly random in a way. Like mm -hmm. you, you can scale up your alts by having more miners, but there's nobody controlling or deciding which transactions get added to a block. There is nobody who has some kind of specific advantage built into the system that allows them to add more blocks to the blockchain mm -hmm. than others. So by ensuring that it's all handled by math rather than by people, that's how we keep it fair and secure. Mm. And once you get an understanding of that, it gives a lot of confidence in what is actually securing your money in the system rather than someone gets to decide tomorrow, like they're going to be the ones who earn Bitcoin for adding blocks to the blockchain, et cetera. Right. Uh, and that's really important to understand too, is that there are incentives to be a miner. You earn new Bitcoin that is uh, uh, given out by the system mm. itself that halves every four years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a scarce good and miners want to earn that scarce good and be the ones who add that block to the blockchain. Mm -hmm. If they do a good job at that, like if they just uh, uh, match all of the rules of the system, then they can get paid out that Bitcoin. Uh, and that is what helps them pay for their electricity costs as mining obviously uses energy, mm -hmm. just like any other computer uses energy. Um, and that for them is the, the incentive to behave well because it's far more rewarding for them to do what the system asks them to do so that they can earn Bitcoin rather than trying to cheat the system in some way and like putting in false transactions, uh, trying to double spend transactions as people uh, often refer to where you just spend it in two different places mm -hmm. 
and then try to make some money off of that. So they're incentivized to behave well. And that's really powerful for the system as there's no, no human involvement there and making sure that, you know, you can sleep at night knowing that your money isn't being like uh, rolled back mm -hmm. uh, out of your wallet or whatever. So, yeah, I think one of those beautiful things about Bitcoin is that, that you just need to trust individual self-interest, right? Rather than trusting someone's going to operate in your self-interest, yeah. which is the flaw with many of our other existing monetary yeah. systems. Um, what do you think about one of the useful analogies or framings I've heard for Bitcoin mining is that it is something akin to a lottery system yeah. where each miner or each unit, you know, these are little shoebox sized mining units that are plugged in. Um, they have chips. What are these application specific integrated circuits? So these chips are designed to do one thing only, which is to generate guesses for uh, the solution to that answer, which is to close the block every 10 minutes and earn the yep. reward, as you said. So the more capital expenditure you're committing to the network in terms of these mining machines and the operational expenditure you are committing to securing the network in the form of electricity is akin to buying more lottery tickets effectively. And that increases your chances of winning this global lottery every 10 minutes. Um, is, does that analogy fit and is that yeah, framing useful? I, I think it's one of the best ones yeah. to, to really understand what's happening rather than the very vague, they're doing complex math problems. Mm -hmm. Because when you hear that, you think like, oh, maybe someone will one day figure out a way to like crack that system and mm -hmm. instantly have the answer. But that's just not how, how mining works, how hashing works, which mm -hmm. is what they call it. You're just trying to get as many guesses as possible, but at the same time, there is no limit to the amount of tickets for that lottery. Mm -hmm. So it's not like someone can come in, buy all of the, the tickets essentially. Well, you could temporarily buy out all of the stock of, of new miners that come into mm. the market, but then the manufacturers will just scale up and start selling more. So That's that right. doesn't really work. And you're competing with existing miners. Yeah, you're yeah. competing with the other ones and they're trying to expand their operations too yeah. to try to uh, be, be a party that just earns more mm -hmm. Bitcoin in general. Yeah, and the lottery, I guess the other key point is the lottery becomes more difficult the more tickets are purchased. Yeah, right? essentially. But yeah. Th but this, there's a common misconception around this, especially with people who aren't really into Bitcoin too much. Uh, there's been this, this misconception spread in the media that Bitcoin's energy expenditure will only ever increase. Mm, so that's, that's where you get those kind of headlines and articles from where people say like, oh, in... Uh, I think it was the World Economic Forum that said in 2017 that by 2020, mm -hmm. Bitcoin would use all the energy in the world mm -hmm. uh, of 20, like what was being used in 2017. Yeah. And the reality was like, it was like 0.1%. Yeah. So it just doesn't really make any sense, but they do the math of, well, you know, if we expect that by that year, there's this many people using Bitcoin and this is the energy expenditure per transaction, then we can just scale it up. But that's, right. that's fundamentally not how it works. Uh, we could spend 10 times as much energy as we are today and still process the same number of transactions, or we could spend only 10% of the energy that we are today and process 10 times as many transactions mm -hmm. through, for example, the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. So th there is no direct link there between right. the two, but it is like it's, it's difficult to understand. It takes people a lot of time to get to that point. Uh, but it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a, a train with a certain amount of space uh, mm -hmm. in there. That's how you can think of the blockchain and you can put your transaction in there, like buy a ticket to go on that train essentially mm -hmm. and, and travel. Uh, and it's not like that train itself can infinitely expand because there is just only so much space mm -hmm. on the blockchain itself. So as a result, like there is no, there's no way where billions of people can use the Bitcoin blockchain itself at the base layer. 
to then make it spend like make it cost so much energy that miners need to do all this stuff uh and i think part of the misconception is that people think that miners are sort of processing the transactions that people send and that they need to do calculations with those transactions but that's not really how it works a miner just takes the transactions that are waiting in the queue to essentially enter that train mm -hmm. and they just put a specific amount of them in the train whoever's paying the highest for their ticket essentially and then those will uh, essentially be waiting there until the moment where the miners have figured out how to kickstart the train like how to add the next block mm -hmm. to the, the history of the blockchain and that is the part where they're spending energy to try to guess that number that sort of mm -hmm. uh, solves the entire puzzle that gets the whole thing together and then gets it going but the transactions themselves it's just a piece of data that they're quickly checking and Take right. like a fraction of a second uh and they're just checking like is this transaction legitimate does it have all of the 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 things that we need a transaction to have for it to be able to go on bitcoin mm -hmm. so and um yeah, the the claim by the world economic forum that you mentioned it's so asinine isn't it it's going to use all the world's energy it's like okay yeah. so no one's going to have demand for energy for anything else yeah right just money like, yeah it doesn't make no one's going to want to dry their hair or or cook food like it's it blows my mind that you can get away with headlines like that. Yeah. And then no one ever seems to go back on them three years later and say, well, Never. how much did you miss the mark on this prediction? Never. 99.9%. And, and even if you do, like you're shouting it on Twitter to avoid yeah. of people, some of them will pick up on it and yeah. be like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But for the most part, they'll just they'll they'll just think of all the other, I call this like head, headline accumulation. Yes. This is why a lot of people never get into Bitcoin is because their only touch points with Bitcoin are those headlines in the mainstream media that they pick up over the years, where it says like it uses too much energy, like it's polluting the planet, boiling the oceans, it's only used by criminals. Mm -hmm. And they just accumulate all those headlines over the years. And then that is their perception and of they, Bitcoin. Yeah, they recite it like an unconscious yeah. program. And they think like, I don't need it myself. And all I'm hearing about it is this negative stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even going to look into it. And that's... Yeah. So one thing about Bitcoin that I think many people grasp intuitively, maybe not not all, but a good majority is that the fixed supply of Bitcoin is a useful quality, right? The idea of holding people understand rarity, you know, like if you've got yep. one out of 100 baseball cards or Picasso paintings or whatever, people sort of get that that that's at least related to value. Yep. Bitcoin has this fixed supply of 21 million much many fewer people understand how that is intimately connected to proof of work mining and they if you don't understand that connection then you might fall for things like proof of stake or proof of yep. this or proof of that how do you then explain the indispensability of proof of work mining to the fixed supply of 21 million bitcoin yeah the the, the fixed supply is the thing like you're, you're like you're saying it's what incentivizes people to participate in the system mm -hmm. because people want to accumulate as much bitcoin as possible it's mm -hmm. why you have all those theses around like everyone divided by 21 million and whatnot mm -hmm. and like looking at a deflationary world and whatnot like people just think of it as like you say it's a rare good mm -hmm. and people want to obtain that rare good and for a rare good like if you need to put in work for that to get it people will do it as mm -hmm. long as they believe like in the long run this will pay off mm -hmm. for me um and and miners like you know there there is a limited amount of bitcoin there will be 21 million at most uh but they are earning transaction fees as well in the block so eventually when that subsidy ends they will still be earning fees for people using bitcoin itself mm -hmm. and that's how it was was initially envisioned by satoshi and that's mm -hmm. how it's been ever since so when people try to think of 
things like proof of stake where you could essentially risk like you're risking value but you might have accrued that value in the past for almost no cost and then you're only risking that value to try to earn more value that is like in essence it looks from from an outside perspective it's crazy to me that it even catches on because it looks like uh, a crazy pyramid scheme mm -hmm. to be honest like mm -hmm. the only way yeah. you can earn money in the system is if you buy it from one of the existing stakeholders to then also start earning more in the system yes and the thing with proof of work is that in essence, anyone can participate. Yes, there is a capital cost to buy a miner and to get involved, but there is no, like, there, there's no permissioning in that, obviously, but there is, like, you don't need to buy that miner from some other Bitcoin miner who's already in there. You buy it from a manufacturer, or you could, in theory, even use, like, your own computer, but then you're going to be disadvantaged at mm -hmm. guessing those numbers uh, in, in the sort of global race to add blocks to the blockchain. Um, but, yeah, it's a... Uh, from my perspective, like proof of work's true strength and, and differentiation from proof of stake is that it's so tangible. Like there is, there's physical machines behind it. There's energy being expended. It's not something that you can fake. Like it's, it's not mm. sort of, uh, corruptible in some kind of way. Whereas in a system where everyone just puts a bunch of money together and they decide which transactions get added to the blockchain, mm. It is fundamentally different. It feels a little bit hacky to try to get the same result. And that's ultimately what it is. People have figured out a way, like how can we do something that doesn't use energy because there's a lot of criticism against Bitcoin that it uses too much energy. Mm -hmm. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of misconception around that too. Like should, like does Bitcoin deserve it to use energy essentially? Like should it be using energy? And what a lot of people don't get there is how much it is actually using and how much of that is also renewable energy, which is what a lot of people yeah. like to see, and all of the different ways in which it can actually help the energy grids that we have today, which uh, I've looked into a lot as well in the report that I did. So, um, yeah. the um, I like that framing, actually. So proof of work is something like equality of opportunity, right? Yeah. Anyone with access to hardware and electricity, cheap energy, you can enter the race for Bitcoin mining. But proof of stake is something very different. It's like this permissioned, it's a pyramid scheme really, right? Like you got to buy into this thing, you generate yield based on how much you bought and the yield's coming from the new entrance. Yeah. So it's very Ponzi-like. The, 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 the real, like people sometimes say about Bitcoin, like what's the incentive to spend it because people expect it will rise over time? Well, in a proof of stake system, that's even stronger because like why would you spend some of, the money that is earning you money, right, essentially. Right, so, right. So Which is inherently centralizing. Yeah, yeah, enormously. Whereas in, in Bitcoin, like, yes, if you bought in early and you made a lot of money, great, but eventually people mm -hmm. do want to spend it. Whereas in a proof of stake system, you could literally see people that will just pass on their wealth to the next generation so it can automatically keep generating wealth. And basically right. you've secured your entire bloodline for the next right. 100 generations. Right. right, and you've bifurcated the world into the haves and the, the yeah. permanent haves and the permanent have-nots in a proof-of-stake system. And and like a random shout-out to, to Gridless, for example, Gridless operating in Africa, like they're also bringing mining to local communities there to figure out like how can we lower mm -hmm. their energy costs by using this, the surplus in mining that's there to uh, essentially lower the average energy price that, that people are paying. So they just, they figure out like, where is there a, you know, a, um, a hydro plant mm -hmm. might just be small scale and it typically is. And if you look at what the demand is of a typical village in Africa, like they'll, you know, at, at like 6 PM in the evening or so when they get home from work, that's when they need electricity. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the day, it's pretty low, uh, what their demand is. So 
what Bitcoin miners do is like during the rest of the day where there's overcapacity, they use up that mm -hmm. mining power. And with the money that is earned there, they can help pay off that hydro facility, which mm -hmm. lowers the average electricity cost. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of these kinds of examples. Uh, and people sometimes feel like, oh, that's a bit gimmicky or niche or something. But this is like it's growing and it has a meaningful impact on people's lives. Um, so it is not just something that's only for the big farms that are here in mm -hmm. the US uh, or in various other places. It is something that can can truly break through on a global scale. Yeah, there's like a load balancing feature there, yeah. right? Where you've got too much energy sometimes and not enough at other times. And you can monet, by virtue of being able to monetize the excess, you can offset the times when you don't have enough. And it, there's an economic advantage to be gained yeah. for a lot of a lot of market actors. And one of the most amazing things about mining that I've really appreciated because you brought it up at the start, like it's not been something that's been covered a lot. And I, I had a similar feeling. I've been in Bitcoin for a while and I had a feeling that I didn't really understand mining as deeply as I would like to. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, working at River, we have a mining product as well, a hosted mining product. Mm -hmm. I also felt like, well, many of our clients will probably feel the same or feel hesitant, like, should mm -hmm. I be getting into this? How much of this should I understand? And when you get into mining, you not only learn a lot about mining, which is like, it feels super interesting to just understand how, mm -hmm. how what is actually securing your money. Uh, how does this system operate in a way that doesn't uh, require humans to make decisions? But there's also the, the energy aspect that we're touching on where you're just learning about how energy markets work and mm -hmm. just even the understanding that energy grids need to always have a stable load. Like that is not something that right. the average person knows. They mm -hmm. just think about plugging their appliances mm -hmm. into the wall and they need to work mm -hmm. and they pay, hope they pay as little as possible, but they don't understand much about what happens behind the scenes to make sure that there is always a stable load. Yeah. And what do those uh, grid operators need to do to make sure that they always have exactly the right supply to match the demand. And that's where Bitcoin mining can be such a powerful tool to jump in to help them monetize this as well, rather than just burn off all the energy, just right. throw it away right? Uh, because there is no other use for it. And Bitcoin miners, they can shut off at a second, at a second's notice, and they do this uh -huh. in a lot of places as well to help balance those grids. Yeah, I think they call that curtailment, at yep. least in the US, where the, the there's nowhere to sell the energy, so they just literally burn yep. it off or waste it. Um, and I, and it's especially a pernicious problem with renewables, right, that have these high variable yep. loads like wind and solar. So Bitcoin in many ways is, is very complementary to renewable energy. Not only does it use a lot of renewable energy for that very reason. Yeah, it's like it's the majority of all the energy at this point. Yeah, but it's also making renewables more viable as, yeah. a, as a technology. And, and, but then people, like, they try to because they're still sort of in denial about Bitcoin deserving, being deserving of energy. They're like, but can we use batteries for this? Well, battery technology right. just isn't right. there to capture that kind yeah. of load, like nowhere near it. Or they think like, can we use like other data centers? Well, imagine you're trying to buy something on Amazon and the website goes blank because some of Amazon servers had to shut down right. uh, because there was like a need to give some energy back to the grid. Like. There's so many use cases that just don't work that are too critical or that take hours to spin up like a, yeah. a steel plant or all these types of things. But Bitcoin is really the Bitcoin mining is the ultimate customer there who's like who doesn't care about the location, yeah. who doesn't care about like timing, etc. They just care about a really low electricity price right. to be able to keep their costs low so that they can compete at a global scale yes. in mining. Which, that is all that matters to them. Which is another, I think view on the importance of Bitcoin mining is that it sort of functions as this global bounty program to develop cheaper and cheaper sources of energy, yeah. right? To feed this energy buyer of last resort and cheaper energy is equivalent to saying higher, 
mean, maybe not equivalent, but very close to saying higher per capita GDP, right? Because the yeah. energy is the primary industrial input to all economic processes. Yeah. The cheaper you make that, the cheaper you make goods and services, the higher you make uh, yeah, we're, per, per it's, capita It's GDP. an incentive indeed to just yeah. become so much more efficient at so many things. Like how can we make faster and faster computer chips? Mm-hmm. Like there is suddenly an, a much more of an economic incentive to do that. AI is also helping right. a good bit there, I think. And, and like historically, this has always been for military purposes that a lot of technology gets developed but now we're also seeing technology get developed more for human flourishing mm-hmm. which is also like just like the internet well internet kind of started out militarily as well i suppose mm-hmm. but uh yeah it's just it's awesome to see i think yeah yeah there's always a it's a strange dance between kind of the market and military how it drives innovation um now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor icoin technology icoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up. Okay, so here's a framing that I've, I've used before and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. When people ask me this question, because there is this weird value judgment, like, well, people say Bitcoin wastes electricity. I'm like, well, does your hairdryer waste electricity? Did, 
Did mm-hmm. everyone else really want your hair to be dry? Like, no, you wanted your hair to be dry. You paid for the electricity. Yep. You paid for the machine. You dried your hair. If I want to preserve my purchasing power and a money that can't be debased, well, then I'll pay for the asset that pays for the electricity that pays for uh, for this monetary utility, effectively. Um, to try and explain why the expenditure of energy is so important to Bitcoin, I've framed it like this. I said, if you want a money that nobody can counterfeit, then you need to peg it to the thing nobody knows how to counterfeit, which is energy. Yeah. Um, it. How does that land with you? And then is there a more technical dissection we could say of that for people? Because it, obviously you're speaking kind of, or I'm speaking in sort of an esoteric way, but I don't, I don't know of a viable alternative to have a guaranteed fixed supply other than energy expenditure. Yeah, we, we just haven't found it. Like there's, right. there's people exploring and looking for other ways and that's how you see proof of stake emerge. And like in essence, I'm not against people exploring and trying to figure out other ways. I think it's fine to do. It's not something I like to spend my energy on. Mm-hmm. Just like, it's another question of what do you like to spend your energy on? Yeah. But uh, like they're, they're free to do that. But like, I agree with the framing uh, and that's in general, it's uh, a thing that we're seeing a lot in the world is like global warming is real. And people want to figure out like, okay, w- like what can we do to make the impact less? And then they just start jumping on all kinds of things mm-hmm. uh, and Bitcoin mining being a big one there. But Bitcoin mining uses like 0.1, like 0.2% maybe uh, at this point with the hash rate increase in of all the global energy. And the question is, is focusing on that, is that going to be the thing that, that turns mm-hmm. everything around? And I focused a lot on this in the report that I made is like, if you also look at some of the things we just discussed, like can it also help? to uh, uh, incentivize the outroll of more renewable energy, for example, mm-hmm. which it can. So you're actually, by fighting Bitcoin mining, in some ways you are fighting against the very thing you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. Uh, which is sad indeed, but people just get so hung up in, they forget that there's a lot of nuance here mm-hmm. in how things work and Bitcoin mining isn't perfect and clean and it's not the only solution to that global kind of energy search that is there, the, the sort of the... Yeah. the complexity of this whole issue it's not the only thing but every bit can help there i think um and ultimately i think people are very like they like to be judgmental about what energy is being used on because it's easier to say ha bitcoin mining is using so much energy while at the same time not acknowledging that you know they have a second car they have a you know they they waste energy on lots of things mm-hmm. I, I really like i think a couple of years ago i read a comment on reddit that like fundamentally changed my thinking about energy because they said like you know if something like britain uh just evaporates mm-hmm. like an entire uh country with a lot of people there that have a pretty high sort of energy uh output in general like quite high emissions that evaporate it will make a fraction of a difference in, in global warming and the global output mm-hmm. where is the energy question decided like where should all of us essentially be focusing our energy if that's truly the thing that we're so focused on mm-hmm. it is decided by the average human being and who is the average human being it's a farmer somewhere in asia living on less than ten dollars a day mm-hmm. that is hoping for a better future for their kids mm-hmm. and they're going to do whatever they can to give those kids a better future and they're going to likely if they climb out of poverty raise their energy output by a thousand and that's billions of people that are going to be doing that over the next decades and who are you as a privileged westerner to tell those people no you're not allowed to increase your energy output even though we've done it historically and 
we've offloaded a lot of our emissions to your country so we can keep our books clean. Mm -hmm. That's like historically what has happened. So if we already know this is going to happen, where those people are going to climb out of poverty, their energy expenditure will rise massively because they're going to get fridges, mm -hmm. they might get cars, they're, you know, they're going to have stable el electricity available at all times. Mm -hmm. If we know that is happening, that's where we should focus our energy and not nitpick about the zero point something percent that Bitcoin mining is using, which is providing a lot of value to people around the world, whether that is an individual that is looking at it and judging it. Like at some point you need to be able to take a distance from that because you can, as an individual, you can think of lots of things in the world that waste energy that you don't really understand or that you don't agree with. But ultimately people are paying a price for that. And it doesn't mean that there should be no rules or regulations or any kind of intervention from anyone to say like, you know, what is actually just massively wasteful. Like maybe there's some kind of middle ground there. I don't know. Well, the, the worst, the term waste and wastefulness, yeah. it's a loaded term because one it man's is. junk is another man's treasure, right? Like yeah. what, if I sit around and play video games all day, well, you might think that's a waste. Yeah. I might get a lot of enjoyment out of it. If I'm paying the market rate for the electricity and the video game yeah. equipment, then who are you to judge? The, the actual difference is what we were talking about earlier with the curtailment. That is mm -hmm. literally energy that is just thrown away actual because there is no other use. Right. That is true waste. Yes. And like in the same way, there's lots of food waste around the world where the food just didn't get to yeah. the person's plate. Like yeah. that is actual waste. So if we want to do what's good for ourselves and for the planet, like in that self-interest that we talked about earlier, then the focus should be on what is true waste, where is nobody yes. getting any kind of benefit out of, yeah. uh, and where did we spend a lot of energy to create something that just resulted in nothing. Yeah, and, and embracing energy consumption. Energy consumption yeah. does not mean environmental degradation. They are not the same thing, right? The more energy we consume as a civilization, the more civilized and wealthy we become, actually, as you described, yep. these farmers getting refrigerators and cars and whatever else. Um, so to demonize energy consumption is to demonize wealth creation in a way and i just don't think that makes any sense at all no. I, I'm, I'm amazed how successful it's been yeah con you know, creating a confluence between these two things of energy consumption equals pollution yeah it's like no they're not the same thing at all yeah that's been that's been wildly successful and yeah. i like in a in a way i get it because it does take a lot of time to to go through it's this nuanced. journey and arrive yeah. at the nuanced conclusion yeah. that energy is complicated what we should be spending energy on like it's there's there's a lot of discussion to be had there so I, like i get why it has become such a big topic and why there's been so much success in in mm -hmm. people getting this belief and sort of thinking against bitcoin in a way uh but that is not the path uh, however the challenge is how do we get enough people to understand like what the actual nuance is without just sounding kind of crazy like yeah. to, to a lot of those people are like yeah but the media has been telling me for years that bitcoin's wasteful so yeah. why are you saying otherwise like there's no way that all of them are wrong yeah so. well hopefully people are waking up to the mainstream media psyop a little bit recently but i agree um okay recently and i'll let you tell me how recently because i'm not exactly sure but there's been a massive boom in bitcoin's global hash rate uh, there was a point, I guess it's 18 or 24 months ago now, where China banned Bitcoin mining. Yep. We saw maybe a 50% drop in hash rate. And then after that bottomed, it has just been yep. uh, meteoric. Yep. What's going on? Like, is this, are, are these um, investments in Bitcoin mining infrastructure that are just coming online? Does, does this have something to do with nation states? Is there evidence that can help us distinguish what's going on or is it kind of a guessing game like mm -hmm. what do you think's happening with with global hash rate 
So I, I think... I guess, sorry, I guess we should mention real quick, global hash rate is the amount of energy being yeah. allocated towards the Bitcoin mining network. Yeah. So it's uh, the number of calculations, essentially, the number of hashes, yeah. the number of guesses, as we yeah. talked about earlier, yeah. that miners are number globally doing tickets. Yeah. Yeah. To, to try to add a block to the blockchain. And that's every single second. And when you understand the numbers behind that, it's like something like, uh, uh, at the moment, we're somewhere around 350 quintillion guesses per second. So those are enormous numbers that people just cannot comprehend yeah. and what are we talking about there uh but that is what's happening and that's why people immediately think oh it's got to be wasteful automatically but and why does it need to be that many and i've looked at a lot of these topics like what what is the benefit in the hash rate growing essentially before we even get into what is what is going on there mm -hmm. that's that's something we didn't really touch on earlier yet mm -hmm. uh but it is important to understand like you know if we could just do this with 10 percent of the energy then why aren't we doing that mm -hmm. it's like well there is no there's nobody who decides when are we going to raise the total amount of hash rate that is allowed on the network. That wouldn't work. There's some kind of human intervention there. Yeah. Uh, or even if you program it, it's like, well, then who gets to decide? Who, who, like, is it just on a who comes in first basis? You're allowed to mine and everyone else you get put in a queue. Mm -hmm. And maybe in a couple of years when the other guys stop, you're allowed to come in. But that just doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be a self-regulating system in a way. And if hash rate increases, what that essentially does is it increases the overall security and the entire history of the blockchain. Mm -hmm. Because if you come in as a miner with a lot of hash rate, let's say you somehow manage to accumulate the majority, which today is like virtually impossible without mm -hmm. like everyone just seeing this coming from a, a long time. Um, but if you somehow manage to accumulate a lot, then what you would be able to do is go back in, like essentially go back in time, pick a point, uh, like just a couple blocks ago, for example, and then rebuild the chain from there to essentially double spend the transaction. So you spent it originally on the on one chain. It's been confirmed. Let's say you somehow managed to send a, a $100 million transaction. You go back in time, you write a new version of the chain with your majority of the hash rate. You overtake everyone else in the network, and then you manage to double spend the transaction. And now you have supposedly earned $100 million. Mm. But what are the implications of that is that everyone who sees that happen is like, damn, the system's not secure anymore. I got to sell my Bitcoin. So suddenly the Bitcoin that you earned as a miner is going to drop in value. The machines that you've put on the network to, to hash on there, they're going to lose their value if people stop having faith in Bitcoin itself because somehow someone has figured out a way to, to double spend transactions. Mm. So like what the hash rate increase does over time is it ensures that there are more honest miners on the network mm -hmm. who just behave according to the incentives of the system. And if you come in as a hostile actor, like let's say the nation states that you were referring to, and you want to figure out like, can we go back in time here and undo the transaction from this country to that country because we don't want it to happen. It's like critical that it doesn't happen for us. Well, if they would try to do that, they wouldn't have enough hash rate to try to be mm -hmm. the one who overtakes the rest of the world. So by there being more energy spent to secure Bitcoin, we ensure that people can just come in and try to rewrite parts of the blockchain mm -hmm. because there, it, there are so many others who are just continuing to build on the correct version of the blockchain, whereas anyone comes in with, with bad intentions essentially just cannot keep mm -hmm. up with them. So that's why like an, an increase in hash rate is important. Like we, we want it to grow. It doesn't need to infinitely grow. Like yeah, there's the yeah, assumptions sure. of it's going to use all the energy in the world. Well, not really. Like there's economics behind that mm -hmm. but at some point uh there will likely be some kind of leveling off where mm -hmm. like of course like technology keeps improving so people people keep getting better miners to 
calculate. Yeah, more. I was going to say that as the miners improve, we get more lottery tickets or hashes yeah. per unit of energy. Yeah. But so, at, at some point that kind of levels off. Like yeah. that's something that we've seen over the years where it becomes harder and harder to keep making those technological yes. breakthroughs. And it's really hard to bet against the ingenuity of, of humanity there where they keep figuring out ways to make those miners more efficient. Right. Which they have amazingly been doing for years. Um, so it's hard to say how long that will continue. But what is clear is that like hash rate has been growing a lot because people feel like, well, it makes sense for me to be earning that Bitcoin in the long run. I should, other than just owning Bitcoin, like buying some, mm -hmm. I could also mine it and help secure the other Bitcoin that I have, help secure the network and earn like KYC free sets as people mm -hmm. often refer to it. So you don't need to identify yourself to become a miner. You can just earn the Bitcoin without having to uh, like purchase that on a platform where you have to identify yourself. So that's also a big incentive for some people to be mining. Um, but I'm kind of like going on a sidetrack. Well, so, I mean, in a nutshell, a growing hash rate represents a more resilient network, more decentralized. Yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know. It doesn't have to be more decentralized be. because it could be the same big could miner. Same. That, right, right, and, right. And that kind of links us back to the topic that we were touching on earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, like, where is all this growth and hash rate come from? A yes. lot of it has come from those big public mining companies mm -hmm. that in like 2021, May 2021 or so is when China said, okay, no more mining here. What's been interesting there is, so they're pretty good at control in general in China, I think, mm -hmm. uh, like good in a in a bad way for humanity. Right. Um, but they've tried to ban mining. And what we see now, uh, two years later, is that there's still a pretty big portion of hash rate there. They just right. haven't really succeeded. Because if you're a miner, like essentially what you run from an energy perspective is some kind of data center. Mm -hmm. So a government inspector comes over and they're like, oh, are you guys mining? Like, no, no, no they're just data centers. Mm -hmm. Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to crack open the miner to see like, wh what are these digits in here? Like, right. Are they, are they hashing or are they storing yeah. information for, for some kind of platform? Like that, that just doesn't really work. So yeah. a, a lot of them, like they've gone smaller scale, they've gone off grid where mm -hmm. they just find some kind of hydro dam in the middle of nowhere, isn't connected to the grid. Mm -hmm. So the government can just remotely detect whether they're mining or not. Mm -hmm. And they're just using stranded energy there that yeah. doesn't really have another consumer. And then the local communities around that dam, they just get a lower average energy price. So yeah. they're not going to complain about it either. So what you see is that uh, like China tried to ban it. That did cause that dip in hash rate that you mentioned. So I think it dropped from like 250 exahash, as it is called. So mm -hmm. that it's like not quintillion, it's the one below that, but mm -hmm. just... Uh, uh, no, sorry, I'm saying that wrong. It's 250 quintillion uh, hashes per second. So it dropped from 250 to 150. Mm -hmm. And then ever since, indeed, it's been rising a lot. And now it's somewhere around 350, mm -hmm. uh, which is like a, just a huge increase over a couple of years. And a lot of that has come from in 2021, when there was so much hype around Bitcoin, the price was so high. Mm -hmm. Miners were just buying these these ASICs, these uh, uh, sort of the mining operators, essentially, were buying those miners, the, mm -hmm. the ASICs for like $10,000 per ASIC or so. And nowadays it's like less than, than half of that right. for a good miner. So they were just buying lots of those machines, assuming that the price was going to stay where it was mm -hmm. or go higher. Uh, and so they were expecting to make far more profit than they were. As it is uh, important to repeat that for a miner, their costs are buying that machine mm -hmm. and it is the electricity that they put in. And then like obviously the maintenance around that and the staff you need to pay, there's some other costs there. Mm -hmm. But the, the miner itself and the energy that you spend to keep it running, those are the main costs. And over time, that needs to help pay off that miner so that you can then start earning a profit. Mm -hmm. um, and like we've seen a lot of 
uh, miners buy a lot of hash rate there, but there is a big difference between like buying something from that mining manufacturer and then getting it in a physical location and getting it up and running. Mm -hmm. And in some cases they were just like pre-ordering from a future batch that would come out, which then needs to get shipped over from right. mining manufacturers. It needs to all get installed, et cetera. And then you got to hope that the energy price that you locked in for is still good enough to currently be competitive on a network. Right. So there was a really big delay between when a lot of miners were bought and when they then ultimately went live and online. And uh, that caused like a lot of hash rate to happen later than 2021. Like in 2022, a lot of the growth there was just from miners that had previously been purchased. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the big public miners had like tens of thousands of them just sitting in a warehouse waiting to go online because they couldn't find the capacity, mm -hmm. for example. Because um, they're, they're obviously like their big energy customers, so you need to have a big facility for that. Right. So there were challenges there that started getting online. And then now what we're seeing is that there's still just a lot of miners that are expanding their operations uh, and they are just always incentivized, as you touched on earlier, to find cheaper and cheaper energy mm -hmm. and to just explore around the world, like where can we find that cheap energy that is stranded, that is not being used by anyone to use that for mining. Uh, so there's, they're just like, as time passes, they just keep finding new facilities. They keep finding right. new locations and going live there. And that's what's been making the hash rate grow a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, um, this thing in China too. So one of the consequences of central planning is you get these massive investments in energy infrastructure. Like China has the Three Gorges Dam, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, I, the Three Gorges Dam alone, I think, can put out more electricity than the entire Bitcoin network consumes. So yeah. it's, it's a massive, uh, massive energy asset. I could be wrong on that, but you end up with all of this excess capacity, right, under central planning. And so even though a country like China wants to outlaw Bitcoin and say no more mining in China, there's still this massive incentive to turn all this excess electricity that you have nothing, you have nowhere to yep. sell it. You can turn that excess capacity into money via Bitcoin mining. So there's this weird like uh, dissonance, I guess, in, in a centrally planned economy. It's like, well, you don't want Bitcoin because it undermines your monetary authority and you know gives people freedom and optionality and all these things. But you have all of this excess capacity investment in energy production mm -hmm. that you have an incentive to turn into money yeah. if possible. So this is where I think, um, you know, there's the saying that people don't follow laws, people follow incentives. I think even if, even China, the most authoritarian iron fist regime in human history, like they can't successfully outlaw Bitcoin or you can outlaw it, but you can't successfully enforce it because these incentives under central planning are just so gigantic yeah. that the individuals that, that are well connected to the state or can do, you know, by, by hook or by crook, they can find a way to turn that yeah. excess energy capacity into Bitcoin are going to do so. Yeah. So to like, to try and bet against the proliferation of Bitcoin, I tweeted this yesterday, is you're just betting against human individual self-interest. Yeah. I think it's a really bad bet to make. Yeah, in general. not one I would make. And, yeah. and what's interesting here as well is that like with the emergence of AI, I figured that initially, you know, governments might be like, no, we should be using this energy for AI in some way. But actually I, I'm, I'm wondering if it's going to be the opposite where they're going to be just as nitpicky about AI using energy. And you're already seeing this emerge a bit. Like some of the first articles have come up where people are starting to look at that footprint and be like, yeah, does it make sense for us to be spending this much energy so Fred can summarize this email with chat GPT? Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, does that make sense? Because like there needs to be huge calculations in the mm -hmm. background for even the simplest questions that you're asking chat GPT. Mm -hmm. And that's just spending a lot of energy. So 
it's like, yeah, you, is that going to be the next thing where they're also going to argue about it wasting energy and trying to restrict that in some way? Where again, a lot of people who have looked at AI, like they, you know, they they see the existential worries about it and like mm -hmm. where might that go? But at the same time, people also realize, well, AI can also help us in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, like if you're trying to cap that energy use somehow, then are you also betting against human proliferation? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, so what countries, I think we're pretty unclear about nation state adoption in general, but there are a few countries that are mining Bitcoin and they've it's public knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, what are those countries and do you expect to see more? Like, how do you think this is going to unfold at, at kind of the nation state level? So like historically, I think the first reports came from Venezuela where a lot of miners got confiscated by the government and then like people suspect likely being put to work. I think there have been some reports around it, but mm -hmm. it's always unclear like from, from such a closed off environment and, and there being the government involved, like who is going to accurately report on that and make sure that it's definitely fact checked and everything. And that's what they're doing. So it's hard to say like, are they effectively mining? If so, how much? Uh, we don't really know that. Um, then there is Iran, where a pretty similar thing happened, I think, where they introduced some kind of law to limit how much miners were able to be operating because they do, like, I believe on their energy grid, they had quite a few just energy blackouts in general because the country in general was struggling to keep it stable. Uh, so I think at some point they, they like, took over a bunch of mining operations there as well, but I, I could be wrong there. Too, because again like how how do we sure. verify whether that's correct yeah. or not uh, but there was quite a bit of talk around that or i believe there might have been a detail there that miners were only allowed to sell it through some kind of government approved portal or solution yeah. or whatever like everything had to pass through them hmm. so that was uh the kind of setup that was used there and then you can like argue well is that like is that truly nation state mining or not mm -hmm. uh, i'm not too sure uh recently there have been reports from bhutan that they owned a sizable portion of Bitcoin and that they're now also raising a fund to get more into Bitcoin mining because mm. they have uh, energy available for it, I guess, like capacity available. Um, and beyond that, like there's been a lot of talk about Russia and people worrying about that. Uh, uh, people in general have been talking more about, oh, are nation states going to get into mining or not? Mm. A lot of people feel like that is inevitable. Um, I feel like it's like, be careful what you wish for mm. in a way because governments will look at Bitcoin in a very different way than than people do. People in Bitcoin, they understand what the, like, wh how, do, how does the power balance work? How is Bitcoin upgraded? Uh, like, how is it secured, et cetera? And when governments come in, they just feel as an entitled government, like, I'm going to be dictating the rules here. Like, let's make this whole thing compliant. Mm -hmm. And you, like, you just bring in a pretty crazy uh, uh, participant in a network essentially that if they grow over time and they start just capturing more of the hash rate that is there in the country like that's also working against entrepreneurs who have thus far done a tremendous job at building out these operations and just being good actors in the bitcoin network so it's essentially advocating for those big nation states trying to uh sort of uh gather up all of the mining hash rate that is there and just nationalize it in some way like that is not something i think that people should be cheering for whether it'll happen, like it's, it it might increasingly happen. It might already be happening more than we realize. Um, like in Russia, there's been a lot of talk around that too. Like the hash rate has been growing there. There have been reports. Nobody really wants to confirm anything or like, it, you know, it's all kind of backdoor talk mm -hmm. uh, between like people that know each other in companies. 
But in general, from my understanding, it's mostly just entrepreneurs there that are using, like essentially in a lot of cases, just fossil fuels. Mm. So a lot less hydro energy there, wind energy, et cetera. Um, they're just using fossil fuels because they have so many of them and it can be a tool for them to get around sanctions and whatnot. Um, but that's like, if you look at the US where, where you know, there's more talk now around some kind of tax for miners, which would make it really hard for miners in the US to be competitive. What does that ultimately do? Like people are trying to introduce those kinds of rules and regulations to supposedly reduce the energy output of Bitcoin mining. But all it does is just makes those miners who already have those ASICs just move to a different location, mm -hmm. use other cheap energy. And in some cases that might be, that might not be renewable energy. So actually on a global scale, they would be polluting more by introducing those kinds of rules. That's so right. if the true intention of those kinds of laws is to reduce the global footprint of mining, then it probably won't achieve that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. And that, that also highlights another quality of the Bitcoin mining network, that it's anti-fragile in that sense to regulations. Like you can, like we yeah. saw with China, right? You clamp down on China. Well, what happens? Those miners get boxed up and they get shipped out to a more friendly jurisdiction and they get plugged back in. Yeah. So. And it's like the governments, they're hopeful that as long as we do that in enough places, then somehow we'll, we'll win this thing. But yeah, I just, I, d I don't see how this can possibly work in the long run. Yeah. It's like fighting a, a Hydra or something, right? You cut yeah. off one head and the heads pop up elsewhere. It's just, it's very nebulous. It's hard to attack because it's decentralized, not just. Um, I mean, in a physical sense, really, it's decentralized, right? Yeah. The Bitcoin mining network. So yeah. now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, -A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And that ultimately leads to the question of you know, even if they did that and they succeeded and Bitcoin mining would reduce in scale. So instead of seeing that increase in hash rate that we've seen for years now, that would drop significantly. What does that mean for Bitcoin? Does that mean your money is still secure? Does it mean it's like, it's like technically seen easier to attack the network? But there's, there's a lot of talk around what people tend to call the security budget. Mm -hmm. There's some like friction around like, is this a great term or not? Because it's not really something you're mm -hmm. planning with. It's just something that kind of happens. Mm -hmm. So what that 
essentially means the security budget is how much Bitcoin, like how uh, how much Bitcoin are miners earning on a yearly basis? Right. What is that worth in dollar terms? And what is ultimately the thing that's securing the network? The cost to so, attack the network. Yeah, so it kind of puts a price on, well, if you were someone with a lot of capital, like a nation state, and you came in, this is what it might cost you to buy a majority, like to get in and to buy a majority of the hash rate. Mm-hmm. But it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you look at what the security budget for 2022 was, it was about $9.5 billion. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that if you have $10 billion, you can no. come in and you have all of the hash rate because you need to get those machines. The lead times. Uh, yeah, and yeah. they just don't exist at the moment. Right. So it would take an enormous amount of time to buy that much hash rate, to plug it in everywhere where, you, where you'd where have the cheap enough yeah. electricity. And people in, like the industry is small enough that people would start talking like- People would respond. Yeah, yeah. people would respond. And there's always the possibility that Bitcoin's uh, algorithm that secures it, that it changes. Because mm-hmm. those ASICs that we talked about earlier, the very specialized computers, mm-hmm that are extremely good at just doing those guesses, it could be that there's a change made to the code if enough users in a network agree that this algorithm that we're using is no longer secured, it's just somehow been far too much accumulated by those nation states, then we can change that algorithm and just undo what they've built up. They would also hurt the existing Bitcoin miners in the process. So it's not a change that you'd make very lightly and people just kind of like to brush it off as, oh, we always got this, this backup option. It's not a light change to make, but it is a possibility. So Mm -hmm. there isn't really an incentive for for people to do all that just so they can double spend a transaction or like, I guess the more harmful attack would be for those nation state miners, for example, to either censor transactions, Mm -hmm. so make it really difficult for some countries or individuals to get their transactions in or to just mine empty blocks. Like Mm -hmm. literally that would be burning money for them. Mm -hmm. And the question is how long can they keep that up? Mm -hmm. But you could disrupt the Bitcoin network by just mining empty blocks over and over because a miner isn't forced to include transactions in a blockchain. So they can just let everyone sit there, but that then accumulates in value. People start paying more in fees Mm -hmm. to try to get honest miners back in the race. So that's a a constant battle. Um, There's the other component too, is that as hash rate comes down, Bitcoin mining is becoming more profitable actually. So any of these machines that are co-located with renewables or other energy assets, they may actually come back online to help push hash rate back up. So yeah, it's very much this kind of back and forth game, but um, the incentives are tilted towards honesty, right? And and, and basically complying with the consensus rules of the network to benefit your own self-interest, which also benefits the interest of all holders and and other network participants. And, and to kind of tie up Bitcoin scarcity that we talked about earlier, the 21 million and and the security budget question there, like ultimately we don't know how much hash rate we need mm-hmm. to secure Bitcoin. And that's like one of the things that I really dove into in the research is people like they spread all this information around, well, Bitcoin's block reward. So mm-hmm. how much Bitcoin miners earn when they get to be the one to add a block to the blockchain, that's going to half every four years. So people say these things like, well, that means in four years that uh, uh, we need to have a significant increase in transaction fees so that miners can earn the same security budget as they are today. Mm. But we don't know if that's needed. Right. Maybe Bitcoin is True. secure enough with, with 5% of its current hash rate where nobody's even going to bother attacking it. We don't have the answers to that. Right. But there's a lot of people on Twitter, obviously, and, and everywhere else who who have an interest in seeing whatever coin they have succeed, mm-hmm. they'll spread this kind of misinformation. And for a beginner, when you hear that, like, you know, Bitcoin's transaction fees are going to need to rise so much, they need to double every four years, mm-hmm. or which is not even correct, actually, yeah. but a lot of people say this, but they need to increase this much to be able to keep the same security budget. And then the simplest question you can ask them is, well, how do we know what is enough right. security? 
we don't know that. We're just like, it's just increasing a lot. Right. It's growing because people want to participate in a network and earn that scarce good. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably never, like, when do you know the answer to, is it enough security? When attacks right. fail. Yeah. When right. people come in and yeah. they test the system yeah. and it backfires on them. What is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a quote. He says, before you can know what is enough, you must first know what is too much before you can know what is enough. No. So it's like, the only way we're ever going to know what enough is, is when there's an attack, right? And we either yeah. successfully defend or not the attack. Um, so yeah, it's a great point. Uh, okay. To wrap up here, where are we with Bitcoin adoption globally? Like I've heard the number thrown around of roughly 100 million people mm-hmm. holding Bitcoin worldwide. Uh, I've seen some posts online recently about saying the number of addresses holding one Bitcoin or more has recently hit new all-time highs. I forget the number, maybe 40 million. I'm not sure actually about that. Uh, yeah, that, that one can be because then we'd have 40 million Bitcoin. But yeah. I, Thank you. Yeah, no, these <laughs> things happen all the time. I, uh, I run through these numbers and then sometimes you need to take a step back and like, <laughs> hold on that math. Check the math. Yeah. <laughs> run the numbers. Um, what is that roughly correct in your estimation that we have 100 million people holding Bitcoin today? And if so, I mean, we would expect, I imagine everyone that is an internet user to ultimately become a Bitcoin user if Bitcoin succeeds in the way we envision it. Where are we today? Where do you think we're going with, with Bitcoin adoption at the uh, individual level? Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot and looking into it a lot for, for other research I'm currently doing. And like the 100 million number, I think we're a bit lower than that. There have mm-hmm. been some estimations around that. And if it's true, if it would be 100 million, which like it's also just an estimation, I guess, but if it was, then there might be a good bit of paper Bitcoin, which mm-hmm. would be worrisome. Mm-hmm. And paper Bitcoin being like people think they hold Bitcoin sure. at exchanges that don't actually hold all of it. Uh, so I, I looked into ways to try to estimate this, which is extremely difficult. Like you'll never know for sure. But uh, Glassnode, which is a provider of uh, analytics of the blockchain, like they just list all kinds of analysis uh, and, and graphs to allow you to analyze things. They've done really extensive analysis to figure out like how many entities are there in Bitcoin. And an entity can be an individual, but an entity can also be an exchange, for example, that has lots of users on it. Uh, or it can be a fund, for example, that has uh, a multi-sig, mm-hmm. so like several keys securing the money and those keys are held by different people. That can also be an entity, for example. But what they've done is just large-scale analysis, kind of like the uh, blockchain analysis companies do as well, where they try to map out like who are all the stakeholders in the system. And they sort of arrived around like 32 to 33 million active entities, I believe, mm-hmm. at the moment. And it doesn't mean that that's the number of users, because as mentioned, there are exchanges as well. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is if you look at the analysis they've done, then you see that the ac- active, uh, sorry, the average active entity, like the, the entity that is mm-hmm. still holding some form of Bitcoin today is what they call active. Uh, they have like a specific amount of Bitcoin. So if you know that, like how much is the average entity holding, what you can then do is look at how much our exchange is holding. Mm-hmm. And today we know that roughly 2 million-ish Bitcoin is held on exchanges is something like uh, 10% of supply or so. Uh, at the moment, historically, it's been a little bit higher here and there, but at the moment it's like at a all time low in several years, mm-hmm. which is great to see. It means people are taking self custody. But uh, if you take that average number that you know the entity's holding, you could sort of think like this might be a pretty close approximation to what the average person is holding. So if we know that 2 million Bitcoin is held on those exchanges, mm-hmm. you can divide that by the average per entity 
which is an assumption like are people on exchanges sure. holding about the same as people off exchanges right. in not in total volume but in amount of bitcoin per person mm -hmm. so under that assumption you derive at somewhere like 38 million users or so so 5 million ish users added on top of that 32 to 33 mm. uh but that is under the estimation that people on exchanges hold on average as much as the a they probably doesn't. hold less, right? Indeed, yeah. like that's yeah. that's the assumption you'd make. So if you then take that assumption, you say, what if they hold about half as a person mm -hmm. does in self-custody? Well, then you arrive somewhere around, uh, I think it was like 40, 43 million or mm -hmm. so, which is not that much of a mm -hmm. jump yet. So that's not too big of a difference. But then if you assume, well, what if they only hold about 10% mm -hmm. of a person that, that holds their Bitcoin in, in, mm -hmm. in uh, self-custody? Well, then you arrive somewhere at 80 million. Mm -hmm. So it could be that the true number is somewhere in that range. And a lot of people feel like, well, that's way too low. There is no way because Coinbase says they have 100 million users. Mm -hmm. Like, no, they have 100 million signed up accounts. But in their mm -hmm. public reporting, they say we have about 9 million monthly active users, mm -hmm. which means they transact in some kind of way during that month. Uh, and then a good bunch of those aren't trading Bitcoin or, ho or holding it either, right, because right. that's ultimately where it comes yeah. down to. Um, and then if you look at something like Binance as well, they're also big. They also have like a hundred plus million users. I don't know the exact number, mm -hmm. but if you start looking into what the actual potential number of holders is there, then it's pretty reasonable to arrive at a conclusion where actually we should still be under a hundred million mm -hmm. users globally. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, like no way to properly verify that, but that's sort of been my approach to try to reverse engineer, like how many mm -hmm. users might exchanges have that are actively holding Bitcoin at the moment. Right. And that's where that concern of like the mm -hmm. paper Bitcoin comes in. Like maybe some of them like have a lot of users that think they're holding Bitcoin and they're not like we saw with FTX, uh, right. for example, which just didn't end up having any Bitcoin. So that would be a very, because if it's 800 million people would be- 80 million. Well, I'm saying if 800 million oh. were 10% of the world population, then 80 million is like 1% of global yep. population. So we're, we're very early basically. Yep. We are. So where is, to your question, like, you know, where is that going? Like, how, how is adoption going to grow? And I feel like, you know, Bitcoin's been around for a while and there are still constantly people learning about it and getting educated and taking the time to understand it. But there's also lots of people who have, at this point, from their perspective, by accumulating those headlines, they've sort of made up their mind. Like, this mm -hmm. is not for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to spend time on this. Uh, I have other things to do and worry about. Mm -hmm. uh, and some kind of catalyst needs to happen in their life. Someone needs to come in who's going to be the one to... They need to feel uh, the pain. Yeah, or or that indeed. Mm -hmm. Like either a person like takes the time to educate them or they encounter some kind of problem where they're like, maybe I was wrong and I need to dive into this. Yeah. But I do feel like a lot of the sort of the lower hanging fruit in a way, the people that were just more inclined to get it, they're more likely already into it mm -hmm. now, which does exclude, to be fair, like people in just uh developing countries who don't have access to like the right resources etc uh who might not have enough money to even think about investing in something like this because they're just living day to day mm -hmm. so that's an exception but that's also a harder problem to solve but in general a lot of the more tech inclined people like they've paid attention to it and are like all right uh uh this makes some kind of sense for mm -hmm. me or this is something i want to hold uh, a bit of or a lot of so like, how do we grow to that next stage? How do you get to those 800 million people or eventually yeah. 8 billion? That's hard. And I think like, you know, there's so many discussions around user experience. Like how can we get it so easy for people that anyone can intuitively understand yeah. it or that Bitcoin is just being used in a background without people even realizing it 
for example, through the Lightning Network being used as a like a backend rails between different mm -hmm. services. So there's all kinds of discussions there, but I, I do think beyond just making the technology better to make it easier for people to adopt, people also need to get a lot better at education, I think, mm -hmm. because the, and that includes myself, like it's always like a, uh, and, and River, I think as well, like it's always an introspection thing where a lot of people do things for like to help educate others. And that's great. And I love to see it. At the same time, there's so many people who are like, I, I can't get through to these people. Like I can't convince them or show them that, you know, inflation is real and they yeah. should be paying attention to Bitcoin. And a lot of people go into these discussions with the mindset of, I need to orange pill this person. I need to convince yeah. this person that they should be paying attention to Bitcoin. And that's, that just doesn't resonate with no. a lot of people. No. There's, there's a lot of introspection you need to do to actually realize what is good education. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not shipping someone off to go read a 400 page book. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you have a question about, uh, I don't know, like, uh, nuclear energy or something. Just read this 400 page book. Like mm -hmm. nobody does no that. One does, uh, that just doesn't really work. Like passionate people who love Bitcoin, they'll spend time listening to podcasts, reading books. And it's amazing that these resources are there. But there are also plenty of people who are less likely to take the time for that. So how do you still want Bitcoin to resonate mm -hmm. for them? And that takes some realization that actually I don't have shortcuts there. I can't yeah. just ship them off to something else and then it's not my concern anymore. I'm going to need to figure out a way to make Bitcoin resonate for them. Like what is an interesting touch point for them where they can realize actually there is, you know, there is something to this where I should be paying attention. And it's much more about having a conversation with that person and figure out what makes them tick. Like, yeah. what are they hoping to achieve? What are their, their hopes and dreams and goals in life? And is there a way where Bitcoin in some way, or just generally struggling with money, like w where is there an interesting touch point there? Because a lot of, it's, it's kind of like the privacy discussion. People, if you talk to people about privacy, nobody's going to go through their phone and switch off their, their access to microphone and whatnot and all these apps. Yeah. People don't like taking actions themselves to fix their privacy. But how do you convince a person of privacy? You talk about the privacy of their kids. Yes. And you go like, right. well, actually all these apps are spying on your kid and they instantly go like, oh, I need to learn about privacy and right. figure out how to protect my kid. And it's in, in a lot of ways, it's the same with money where you say to them like, well, you know, this wealth that you're saving for your kid to go to school one day, right. it's inflating away. You're not right. going to have anything for them when they're 18 years old and they go off. Uh, just like that's how it was for me as well. My parents also yeah. tried to save money, invest it through a bank and they put it in the fund, et cetera. And most of it was just wow. like, didn't really return anything. Yeah. So that's how you get through to people. It's like figuring out what's the critical thing there that makes them tick. Yeah. And sometimes there isn't anything and that's also okay. You can't force Bitcoin on someone by trying to make it more interesting to them than it is. Yeah. And you shouldn't anyway, because honestly, like Bitcoin is super fascinating. You don't need to oversell it. No, it yeah, no, it's a great point. Figuring out an in interesting angle. That's, that's I like the idea of the kids because that is very embodied like people, everyone gets that, everyone that has kids at least. Um, and it's, there's, there's some study where it's like, if you give someone, a doctor gives someone a prescription for their own health condition, the compliance rate on that prescription is like 60%, right? Like 60% of the people take it, 40% of the people don't. If they give the same person a prescription for their dog though, the compliance rate is like 99%, right? It's like, yeah. we have this weird thing where we kind of care about others or our kids or our animals sometimes more so than we do ourselves. And so maybe there is uh, some framing, some good framing there that central banks are stealing from your kids basically because they are, whatever you think you're saving in fiat currency or even some of these fiat denominated assets that can be taxed uh, into oblivion, let's say. Like yep. that's another way to be stealing from your kids. So 
and there might be something there. And I, there is this this bitter, twisted irony to this whole thing too, because I mean, when I look at the history of money, I see a lot of people not moving for a long time. Like even people when they would go to these banks and they'd say, you know, there's a rumor that you're a fractional reserve. Do you have the the money on hand? Mm. I want to withdraw it immediately. And the, if the bank could prove, like, oh no, we do actually have the reserves, and the 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 person would say, oh, well, never mind, I don't want to withdraw it. Like they want to leave the money there. Yep until there's a, a reason to withdraw it, right? And so pain seems to be that thing that moves people. Most people, right? Like it, it's much more cost-effective to learn through the pain of others. If you can study history or study other people's experiences and apply those lessons to your life. But humans being human, it seems like we, most of us, I'm not discluding myself from this. Like I've learned a lot of things the hard way you have to go through it. Like you have to actually feel the pain and yeah. then you understand not just cognitively, but tacitly the need for something like Bitcoin to protect yourself. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I guess the wisdom is coming, right? Because the, we see the, the writing on the wall, right? The, the money's being printed. There's more oppression. There's more uprising. Like the pain is coming. And I think the bitter irony is that in the end, like after Bitcoin has succeeded, we'll look back and say, oh, wow, the state actually orange-pilled more people yeah. by many orders of magnitude than any educators, any books, any podcasts. It was like the the, the actual organization that inflicted the pain yeah. is what drove people into Bitcoin. Yeah. So I hope it doesn't come to that. No, me neither. But if you look at the state of things, it's uh, it's hard to see it go a different way. Yes, indeed. Sam, I've already kept you too long, man. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. Um, Looking forward to the conference. Me too. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at SDWouters. That's the main thing. I'm like, I work for River, obviously. I'm constantly putting out research for them uh, and content. So if you're more like interested in more stuff like this, then uh, take a look at that. I would say I'm relatively soon coming out with uh, Bitcoin and cross-border payments research which also touches on some of this adoption stuff that we've been chatting about. So that's, uh, yeah, that's me. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, thank you too. Oh.